Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 905. On today's show, we are joined by a major league pitcher who has his own podcasting experience, and then we regrettably must honor another late Hall of Famer. To begin the program, David Lorela is joined by Ross Stripling, Toronto Blue Jays right-hander and co-host of the Big Swing podcast. David and Ross talk about what it's like to be on the mic versus on the mound. They compare interview techniques and what kind of questions are best to give and receive. Ross also shares how he prepares for his toughest matchups, such as what it's like to have to face hitters like Mike Trout. I tell you what, he's just a, a scouting report-wise and matchup-wise, he's a nightmare for me because he hammers off-speed, and I throw a lot of off-speed. He doesn't chase, but he also will hammer it if it's even like six inches below the zone. He's a great low-ball hitter. So if you throw your nastiest curveball and it's going to basically bounce behind the plate, he's either going to spit on it or he's going to hammer it because that's right into his wheelhouse. Following that, Jay is joined by John Wiseman to discuss the late Tommy Lasorda. Jay and John recall the long and complicated career of the iconic Dodger, the only pitcher to be in the Hall of Fame for their managing. Lasorda was a remarkable character whose image reached beyond baseball, something even more noteworthy for the time. First of all, let's just talk for a moment about how peculiar it was, not that Lasorda was friends with Sinatra and all these guys, but that he was friends with them before he had even managed a day in the big league. Right, right. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you'd like to be one of those supporters, the best way to help us out is to get yourself an ad-free membership over at Fangraphs.com. I also recommend checking out the store if you're in the market for a Fangraphs t-shirt or hoodie. We sincerely appreciate all of your help. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is Ross Stripling, right-handed pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays, and almost as notably, co-host of the Big Swing podcast. How are you doing today, Ross? David, what's up, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Always fun to hop on another podcast. I understand the grind of finding guests and finding things to talk about, so I'm always happy to help out another podcast. Yeah, that was actually one thing I wanted to ask you about is which is more challenging, planning and executing a podcast episode or preparing to pitch in a big league game? Yeah, I mean, the, the answer is preparing to pitch for a big league game, and, it, and it's not even close, and I don't mean that to demean you or me as a podcaster, but, uh, you know, that is obviously a, a different realm all of its own, but you know, we were talking before you hit record on this podcast that you don't script anything. You know, we just kind of write down a few notes and, and go off the cuff a little bit and, and just try and keep conversation going. Those are the best podcasts. If I did that trying to get big league hitters out, the podcast would be my full-time job now instead of pitching, I think. you got to have a plan. got to be able to go out there and execute that plan if you expect to have any success in the big leagues. So uh, really, they're, they can't even be compared. <laughs> well, they can't, but, but at the same time, Ross... There are times when you and I are doing a, a podcast interview and you change directions. Things that you maybe thought were going to happen didn't and, and you ad lib. And that does happen on the mound. I know that from simply pitching at the high school level once upon a time that suddenly you know, no, this is the right pitch. It's not what you would think is the right pitch. Right. Spot on. You know, and, and that can come about in multiple different ways. You know, maybe... Your curveball just not there that day, and you got to bag it and go with the slider, go with something else uh, when you normally would throw that curveball. Or maybe your curveball is there today, and the scout report says he can hit a curveball, but you threw him a great one his last at bat, and he smacked it for a double in the gap. You know, it, it's it's pitching is ever changing, and 
if you watch Queen's Gambit, it's a chess match. You know, it, it just is, man. You got to be able to react in real time and be fluid and, and understand that, yeah, you have all the information and, and you're prepared, but sometimes plans change. And just like an interview, you know, I might go on a, a random tangent in this in this podcast segment at some point, but, you know, you got to be able to reel it back in and or go with the flow, whichever one you're best at. What have you learned about the interview process from from podcasting that you maybe didn't understand when you were only always on the, the receiving end? Yeah, great question. You know, what I think I've learned the most is to listen after I ask a question, right? If I ask something at first, you know, we've now done over 100 episodes. The first 25, 30, if I asked a question, I was instantly already thinking about the next question. And I was kind of hellbent on keeping it on the structure that I had written out. You know how you talked about you only make a few notes. Well, I, I wrote a lot of notes and I knew exactly what I wanted to ask my guest. And sometimes my guest would go on these awesome side stories and I would bring them back to, you know, what's your favorite color or whatever I wrote down that had nothing to do with what he was talking about. And once you learn that when you ask a question to stay engaged and that might lead to an even better question than what you wrote down, you understand that you're going to be a much better interviewer. And also just uh, really, a, you know, an appreciation for guys that have to interview people for a living, man, it's hard. It's difficult. It, it, sometimes you feel like you're stepping on people's toes. Sometimes you want to get more out of them when you're not. How do you make that happen. Uh, or even some guys talk too much. How do you get this guy to, to slow down so you can get all your all your information in that you want or all the questions in? You know, So it's just uh, ever-changing when you're the one interviewing because um, you just kind of never know what you're going to get from that guest. Hearing that a player has a perspective and understanding about the job that, that reporters do is, is nice to hear. From <laughs> a player's perspective, have the quality and depth of questions changed for the better in recent years? or at least become maybe a little bit more nerdy with analytics coming into the game? You know, do you get fewer favorite color questions? Yeah, I would say for sure. You know, especially from the the, the guys that really do it for a living, right? And, and you know, you still, like I, how I kind of touched on earlier in this podcast, like I'm happy to help other podcasts. There's There's a million podcasts out there. A lot of them are done by high school kids, college kids, like guys just doing it for a hobby, trying to get their foot in the door with, you know, some broadcasting experience, whatever it is. And those guys will still ask you stuff like that. And it's typically like a speed round at the end, you know, like, all right, let's get 10 speed round questions. Who's your favorite actor? What's your favorite movie? You know, that kind of stuff. It still comes up. But as far as like post-game interview and someone, you know, in the beat writers and the guys that cover baseball for a living, they'll they'll have very smart questions. And those are fun to answer. You know, hey, back in the third inning, you know, you'd, you'd gotten Mike Trout out with fastball up and in the first time. And I noticed that second time you went, uh, you know, you tried the slider down and away and he whacked it. What were you thinking there? Like, that's a much more fun question to answer than, hey, you know, why'd Mike Trout get a hit off you again or whatever? You know, the, the questions have definitely gotten smarter just in my five years in the big leagues, I think. I have a Mike Trout question for you. Uh, why are reporters always coming into the clubhouse and asking why? he hit you hard rather than <laughs> you getting him out. I happened to chance across those numbers earlier today. It's, it's not pretty, Ross. Against me specifically? Yeah, yeah, five for seven with two bombs. Yeah, I think I got him out for the first time ever in 2019. I think at one point I had not got him out up until that, you know, <laughs> that point in my big league career. I tell you what, he's just a, a scouting report wise and matchup wise, he's a nightmare for me because he hammers off speed and I throw a lot of off speed. He doesn't chase, 
but he also will hammer it if it's even like six inches below the zone. He's a great low ball hitter. So if you throw your nastiest curveball and it's going to basically bounce behind the plate, he's either going to spit on it or he's going to hammer it because that's right into his wheelhouse. And I don't really throw hard enough to beat him consistently up in the zone with fastballs. Even if I execute uh, up and in is his hole. You know, if you throw 100 up and in, you're going to get Mike Trout out. But I throw about 89, 90. So if I live in that up and in hole, he's good enough to make the adjustment and get to it. So for me, I just I got to mix it up as as best I can, keep him off balance, change speeds, and really live on the corners. Or uh, as as the stats show, he eats me alive. Yeah, apologies for staying negative, but what about uh, Javi Baez? Yeah, same same kind of story. A matchup nightmare for me for a different reason because he does chase, but I don't expand a lot, right? So I don't throw a lot of balls in the dirt. I don't throw a lot of balls neck high. I'm, I'm, I live around the zone. And Javi's the kind of guy that he might take a 90-mile-an-hour fastball down the middle and take it for a strike. And the next one might be a slider six inches off the plate and down, and he might hit it for a triple down the line, you know, or even he can cover a ball at his neck up and in. Like he covers so much where you just, as a pitcher, you don't feel like there's a safe zone. So it's kind of the same thing. You got to keep him off balance. You got to change speeds. But knowing that he's hacking, and, and for me, it's just out of my comfort zone to expand as much as you have to to get a hobby bias out. Yeah, to save our listeners having to look this up and to maybe make you look even worse, six for seven with three doubles and a home run. <laughs> <laughs> I figured there was more than one home run in there, so I'll, uh, less than Trout, at least. Sure. Uh, Eric Hosmer has not done well for you, though, so we, we can balance out the, the good and bad. That's one for 16. <laughs> yeah, no, but, ser- but seriously, Ross, when you look at those types of numbers, and even if you don't look at them, you know what the success has been at, at the fringes, you know, either end. Do you tend to see those more as randomness or are you really searching for answers of, you know, how do I need to attack this guy differently? Well, when it's a Mike Trout or a Javi Baez who I really only face once a year, maybe twice a year at the most, you know, you're not really staying awake at night thinking about that one. Now, a guy that does have my number is a David Peralta for the Diamondbacks. And, you know, he's in the division with, you know, when I was a Dodger for five years, I faced him, gosh, countless times every year. And he never did a ton of damage, but I bet he hit over 500 against me. And that at bats against him, those at bats against him, I was searching all the time because I feel like I threw the kitchen sink at him and he was just on everything. If I threw a dart up and in, he would slap it the other way. We would shift against him too. So I'd throw some change ups thinking he would pull him, you know, in, into the shift. Uh, he'd stay on him and hit him through the six hole for a single. And I just feel like I never had him off balance. I never fooled him. And those are the ones that, you know, really, really irk you because as a guy that throws four pitches and and specializes in being able to change looks, change speeds, uh, change eye levels, all that stuff, for a guy to never seem fooled is very frustrating. So certainly those at-bats ahead of time, you're like, gosh, like what am I going to do? Especially if you get to hit in the first one. Then you're already thinking about him while you're facing other hitters, you know, and it's just uh, it'll snowball on you. Right. And game by game, your pitches will not always be the same, certainly not year to year. When I glanced at your StatCast numbers the other day, I saw that you had more success with your changeup this year than with your curveball. And historically, it's been the other way around. Is, is there some reasoning behind that? Well, the changeup was a new grip, and I, I found it in spring training 1.0, the first one, when we were in Arizona. And I knew instantly that it was going to be a good weapon for me. And I think that this year, for whatever reason, I just could not 
throw my curveball for a strike as consistently as I used to. You know, I, I, as in years past, I was having a hard time getting it there. I would throw these great curveballs, but they would all be down below the zone. You know, with the curveball like mine, it's very hard to control because I throw from so over the top, it has a ton of break. So it gets spit on a lot in general. You know, uh, hitters take it because it is such a weird look and you don't see curveballs like mine very often. So I need to be able to land it. And then once I show these hitters, you know, one, two times through the lineup that I can consistently land it where I want, then they start to chase it. If I never show the ability to throw it for a strike, why would they start to swing at it, right? So I was just having a hard time out of the gate striking my curveball. And for that reason, hitters weren't... uh, you know, really weren't respecting it. So I was having to throw more changeups and, and I was having success with it and mixing it into righties when really in my career, I haven't done that a ton, but uh, my curveball is my bread and butter, man. That's priority one. This off season into spring training is making sure I can throw that thing for a strike in my sleep. Cause whenever I can do that, my outings are going to be better. Yes. And if you can pair that with the changeup success that you had this past year, that's gold, right? Yeah, exactly. And then that's, that's a, unbelievable one-two punch as far as a pitch sequence is a curveball into a changeup, right? You know, it's it's a lefty nightmare, and if you can mix it into righties, it's great too because, you know, you kind of slow them down with the curveball, and then you mix that changeup behind it, and, um, you know, it's one of the best sequences in baseball. Yeah, let's uh, jump back, Ross, to, to the interviewing dynamic. I, in normal seasons, that of course didn't happen this year, I would be walking into a big league clubhouse you know, when the door opens, uh, a whole bunch of us come rolling in. The players will all look up if they're not hiding somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure you, you've done that at, at some point in your career. Yeah, it's, sometimes you just have to. <laughs> exactly. But but my question, though, is do players generally know who the writers are when they walk in and what type of questions that they're likely to ask well, we certainly know who the writers are, you know, no doubt. As far as what kind of questions they're going to ask, you know, you have a general idea, but a, a lot of times guys come up with unique stories. You know, sometimes the most fun questions to get asked are about your teammates. You know, I love answering questions about Clayton Kershaw, about Justin Turner, about Mookie, and, or about Dave Roberts, about Vince Scully, Tommy Lasorda, whatever it is. You know, those are the fun ones to answer and that you aren't expecting. You know, someone comes up and just says like, hey, what have you learned from Clayton in your five years being his teammate? I can go on for an hour about that, you know, versus, hey, you know, why is Mike Trout five for seven with two homers against you? Like, that's not as going to be as fun of an interview. But, you know, typically you have an idea that they're going to ask you either about a game in the past or the game tonight, and then maybe one or two about something else. And, and uh, I mean, we definitely understand that writers have a job and they're there to get that job done. And, and what they ask is typically good things and they want to write good things. They're not trying to trap you in a hole. We know that. It's just sometimes, you know, we feel like, we're in a time crunch. We want to go get our reps in, whatever it is, and you'll see us, you know, run out of the locker room when you guys are coming in. Yeah, I think the answer might be that the majority don't want to trap you in the hole. There might be one or two. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and sometimes they do it on pure accident, you know, I think. Very little spite comes out of writers ever, man, and and, and I've only maybe seen it once or twice in my whole career, I feel like. So definitely the majority of guys are, are coming from a good place. Yes. One reason, Ross, that I asked you uh, more about Baez and Trout rather than, than Hosmer is it's really uncomfortable at times I've learned for players to talk about opponents that they've had a lot of success against. You know, you don't want to jinx it and you yep. don't want to make the, the guy sound bad. Yep. That's exactly what it is. It's it's those two things. You don't want to jinx it and you don't want it to ever somehow come across that guy. 
You know, I don't know if Eric Cosmer listens to Fangraphs or the Big Swing podcast, you know, but the last thing I'm going to do is talk about any success that I've had against him because then all he is is motivated to come, you know, turn those stats around and put it on me. So, and it's just, it's kind of a bad vibe, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, we're competing against each other, but baseball is also a fraternity of sorts, you know, where we're, we're all kind of one, one big group of guys, you know, trying to put a good product on the field. And the last thing we want to do is really talk smack on each other. Right. And here's a question that you have maybe never been asked before. You obviously have been asked about your big league debut, which I think is pretty remarkable. I think it's all <laughs> been downhill from there. <laughs> listeners may not know that Ross threw seven and a third uh, hitless innings in his debut. But my question is, do you remember your professional debut, which would have been, I believe, with the Ogden Raptors? You know, which team you played and who the first batter was that you faced? Oh my gosh, man, I do not. I remember going to Arizona, having a physical, then hanging out in Arizona for like two or three days before they flew me to Ogden. I guess it was to Ogden. Oh yeah, landed in Ogden. I remember the guy picked me up from the airport, took me to my host family's house, and then I do not remember opening day when I pitched or anything like that. Do you have that information? I do not. I looked for it, and uh, I'm not enough of an internet sleuth or a patient enough sleuth to to have found that. (laughs) Nope. I, unfortunately, I do not remember. What I remember about that league is facing David Dahl a bajillion times. I mean, he was on the Rockies rookie ball team, and it felt like we faced them four games a week. And he was, you know, he was the first guy I remember being like, gosh, this, this kid is good. Like, what do I have to do to get this kid out? And then we played each other all through. And then obviously uh, Dodgers, Rockies, you know, so I've been having to face him forever. Yes, and you were a Dodger for a long time. We should at least touch on on your new team, the Toronto Blue Jays. What was that experience like in the short time that you had? I tell you what, man, it is it, it is an exciting organization. They are young and they are eager to win. They've played together all coming up through the minor leagues. I think they've won multiple minor league championships. I'm not sure what levels, but they're all very close knit. And um, you know, I felt like I was coming into a into a, a really close team of friends and it did not man it did not disappoint I was I was excited from day one to get in there and, and play with those guys and and they were dealing with some you know tough times man they didn't know they spent the first couple of weeks on the road because they didn't know where they were playing they didn't know if they were going to Pittsburgh Florida Buffalo Toronto at one point they were in Toronto and then got kicked out of Canada you know so they had a chip on their shoulder and they they knew that they had a good team and they were competing with the with the Yankees and the Rays and the Red Sox and it's a team that's uh you know coming into their own man and to think I get to be a part of it for two more years hopefully more is pretty cool because uh I think you know I think times are really bright coming up for the Toronto Blue Jays and you will get to play in Toronto this year it looks like after having to join the team in Buffalo you might know more than me I haven't heard that well that's my assumption Hopefully things can uh, improve a little bit in, in the next few months. Yeah, I hope so as well. You know, it's just the Toronto Raptors aren't in Toronto right now, you know, which isn't necessarily a great sign for us, but that's an indoor, you know, that's an indoor sport. We're an outdoor sport. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully in a couple months we're heading to Toronto and we get to play there because I, I, I've heard nothing but amazing things about the city. I can't wait to get there. I do believe, though, that the Maple Leafs and the other Canadian teams are all playing in Canada, though. Yeah, and once again, I'm not positive about this, but I think the Canadian teams are in Canada and the American teams are staying in America, and they're not commingling. Like, I think only the Canadian teams are going to play the Canadian teams and vice versa with the U.S. Good point. Very good point. Yeah, so the international travel, you know, isn't happening. Yes. Are you a hockey fan at all? 
I'm not. No, I grew up ten minutes from the Dallas Stars and went to a handful of games growing up. But uh, no, I bet I bet I can't name five NHL players, which is a shame. Oh, that's going to have to change. Playing I know. For the Blue Jays. Yep, I know. Yeah, let's uh, close Ross with uh, with another sport. Uh, the NFL playoffs are coming up. We're recording on Thursday, so we're just a few days away from that. The Kansas City Chiefs and Cleveland Browns. What, what do you expect to see? Well, you know what I expect to see? I think the Browns are coming off a really emotional win, and my guess is they're a little bit drained, and they're having to go into Arrowhead, playing the cold against Patrick Mahomes. And uh, I see the Chiefs winning by double digits in that game, actually. Mm. Yeah, Clevelanders will be disappointed to uh, to hear that, but... Uh, <laughs> Frankly, I, I think I have to agree with you. Yeah, it's just, I mean, what an awesome win. I didn't realize how one-sided that uh, Pittsburgh-Browns matchup was. I saw since the merger, the Browns are 6-44 and against the Steelers. So to get a win in the postseason in Pittsburgh is, is pretty cool for them. No, I know a lot of Clevelanders. They are, they are very happy. Yeah. What, what about uh, Buffalo-Baltimore? Yeah, this one... I think has the chance to be well I also think New Orleans versus Tampa Bay is going to be an awesome game but this one I feel like is going to be a really great game man two really explosive quarterbacks also good defenses playing in the cold Uh, I actually I chose Buffalo in the Super Bowl on my own podcast so I got to stick with it even though I could see Lamar Jackson having a great game now that he's got his first win under his belt in the postseason can play a little bit more free but um, I'm gonna take Buffalo I mean in a close one one or two three points Okay, so in the AFC, we have Buffalo beating KC to go to the Super Bowl, it sounds like. I'm assuming you have New Orleans over Tampa, or am I misjudging you? You're misjudging, man. I'm riding the Tom Brady train. Yeah, I'm on it. I just, uh, I tell you what, man, to leave New England and and take on a new team, and he has unbelievable weapons around him. I know Drew Brees is his kryptonite, even going back to college, and they've already stomped the Bucs twice this year. I just see it, it, it just... I don't know, it just coming together for Tom Brady and him making his actually I have I have him in the Super Bowl beating the Bills. Ooh. Yeah. And Tampa to get there will beat the Rams or the Packers. We'll beat the Packers. I just don't think the Rams I know their defense is elite, but I just still think no matter how elite your defense, Aaron Rodgers is gonna find a way to put up twenty eight points and I just don't think the Rams can keep up. But you do expect that Tom Brady will beat Rodgers. I do, yeah, because you're talking about going into Lambeau and Tom Brady played in cold weather like that his whole career. So if anyone can go into Lambeau and and beat Aaron Rodgers, I think it's Tom Brady. Okay, full disclosure that uh, I am a longtime Green Bay Packer fan, so uh, much as I dissed you for uh, not getting Mike Trout and Javi Baez <laughs> out, you, you have gotten back at me without even trying. <laughs> yeah, hey, maybe I did my research and I came in prepared and knew that the whole time. Uh you, you probably did, Ross. Like you said, it's all about preparation. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for coming on, Ross. And I guess we'll sign off there. That was Ross Drepling, who does not like my favorite football team. And uh, I am David Lorla. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. On the heels of a year in which a record seven Hall of Famers died, the baseball world couldn't get a full week into 2021 without losing another. Tommy Lasorda, the charismatic and voluble manager who piloted the Dodgers to four National League pennants and two championships during a run of 19 full seasons and two partial ones, died of cardiopulmonary arrest on January 7th. The 93-year-old Lasorda had returned home earlier in the week after being hospitalized since mid-November due to a heart condition. He'd been the oldest living Hall of Famer since Red Shandies passed away in June 2018. 
That title now belongs to 89-year-old Willie Mays. For over 60 years, as stars and even Hall of Famers came and went from the Dodgers, Lasorda remained a constant. Including the final years of his professional career as a pitcher, he had been continuously employed by the team in one capacity or another since 1957, their final year in Brooklyn. He spent the past 14 years as special advisor to the chairman during the ownership tenures of Frank McCourt and Guggenheim Baseball Management. He had professed a loyalty to the franchise that transcended his own mortality, a subject on which he spoke with frequency. I bleed Dodger blue, and when I die, I'm going to the big Dodger in the sky, he often said. As the manager of the Dodgers from September 29, 1976, when he replaced Walter Alston with four games remaining in the season, to June 24, 1996, when he suffered a heart attack and left the team in the hands of Bill Russell, Lasorda won 1,599 games, the 22nd highest total in Major League history. He's the runaway leader among managers who were primarily pitchers during their playing careers. The Dodgers won seven National League West titles during his run and won pennants in three of his first five seasons. After losing to the Yankees in the 1977 and 78 World Series, they beat them in 1981, a run that coincided with the Scribes' entry into baseball and Dodger fandom. Those teams were powered by the legendary longest-running infield of first baseman Steve Garvey, second baseman Davey Lopes, shortstop Bill Russell, and third baseman Ron Say, all of whom Lasorda had managed in the minors. In 1988, with an already meager offense hamstrung by the limited availability of MVP Kirk Gibson, they upset the heavily favored Mets in the National League Championship Series and then the A's in the World Series, a victory that is widely considered Lasorda's greatest triumph. With me to talk about Tommy Lasorda and his legacy is John Weissman, the author of two books about the Dodgers, 100 Things Dodgers Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and Brothers in Arms, and the proprietor of Dodger Thoughts, a blog he founded in 2002 and still maintains. John also spent the years from 2013 to 2017 as the Director of Digital and Print Content for the Dodgers, and he's now the Vice President of Corporate Public Relations at Showtime. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jay. You're roughly the same age as I am, but you grew up in Los Angeles, so you were even more exposed to the Dodgers. How far back do your memories of Tommy Lasorda go? I can remember watching the Channel 7 local news in September of 1976, the day they announced that Lasorda was becoming manager. They made a pretty odd move, which was they announced that Walter Alston was retiring, and they had him retire with four games to go in the season. And they held the press conference and did the whole transfer and everything, and those final four games are officially the start of Lasorda's career. And it's actually one of my earliest Dodger memories. I was almost nine years old, and... I was just beginning to become, you know, conscious of what it meant to be a baseball fan, to be honest. And uh, it was hard to take in at that time without really knowing what the history was. And then as time progressed, you sort of realized, number one, that Walter Austin had been there essentially forever, as far as I was concerned, dating back to 54. And then the other thing was that Lasorda's personality just immediately exploded into our consciousness with that 1977 season. Yeah, I've always looked at that 2-2 two and two record in 1976 and scratched my head about that because I never really got the logic of doing it that way. It, was, it, it is strange. I, I, came to, I came to it a little bit later. I guess it was 78 was when I really first became conscious of, of Lasorda myself. One of my earliest memories was during the 1978 National League Championship Series against the Phillies. He came to the mound to make a pitching change, and the broadcast put up his career major league record as 0-4. And I assume they had his 648 ERA or whatever it was on there as well. 
Um, I think I knew about his record because I had his baseball card from the top the top seventy eight set, which had the the players' stats on it. But my I remember my dad and I got a good laugh out of it because you know zero and four. Obviously, his his record as a pitcher was pretty funny. But in retrospect, you know I didn't appreciate where Lasorda fit, and I didn't certainly didn't appreciate and really even until recently just how rare you know how rarely pitchers become managers. And I noticed when I was writing my tribute that he's the only pitcher turned manager in the Hall of Fame for his managing. Yeah, I read that in your piece, and that actually was a fact that I wasn't aware of. That yeah, is- I don't think I don't think anybody's made anything out of that, really. You know, you got like Walter Johnson and Christy Matheson and Bob Lemon in their pitcher, you know, Hall of Fame pitchers who managed, and you've got uh, Clark Griffith and uh, Rube Foster, you know, star players, managers, and, and executives who are in there as executives. But you know, there's no, we didn't see anything anything quite like that, uh, like his career. Yeah, it's I mean. His journey is so interesting because clearly, I mean, he's, he began his post-playing career as a scout and quite a, a meaningful scout in terms of building the Dodgers of the 1960s. But then he, he takes, he goes into managing quite soon. I mean, I would say he was not yet 40 before he was starting to manage in the, in the Dodger minor leagues. I, I want to say his first job was with Ogden, but off the top of my head, I'm not sure. One year before, I was, I think they were in Pocatello before uh, for a okay. year, and then they moved to Ogden. But so he got on that managerial track, and then, of course, he doesn't come up as a pitching coach because the Dodgers have Red Adams, who's really a legend as far as pitching coaches go. So he comes up as a third base coach, and you may have written about this too, but like the idea of the ex-pitcher in the third base coaching box. Right. How many pitchers even have anything approaching Tommy Lasorda's personality. Like, yeah. <laughs> he settled himself down on the mound when he was pitching, or was he just unable to settle himself down on the mound when he was pitching? Yeah, you know, I, I wonder about that, especially when I look back at his stats and, and, and the impressions I have of him as being, you know, kind of kind of a red ass. Um, you know, this uh, undersized, cocky, wild-throwing guy who wasn't afraid to brush posing hitters back or, or whatever and, and to uh, protect his teammate. And I know that in that uh, piece that you published on your site as a tribute, which is from your your 100 things uh, Dodgers fans should know and do before they die, you write a little bit about some incidents in, involving him. You want to talk about that for a sec? Well, I think if you're a, a semi-casual baseball fan or Dodger fan, you know about the things like his opinion of Kingman's performance and Kurt Babakwa. And the fact that he could curse a blue streak, unlike anyone else. And he, that was really kind of the tip of the iceberg for him. He was a, at the same time, a raw individual who wore his heart and every other internal organ on his sleeve. (laughs) And at the same time, one of baseball's greatest showmen and salesmen and marketers, the baseball bunch, you know, kind of guy. Not only beat up mascots, but was willing to roll around with them, you know, (laughs) and uh, absolutely, you know, his famous line about how he wanted the Dodgers schedule posted on his tombstone, which, you know, is poignant now, but something he said 45 years ago. That was not really an act for him. It's just that he had both sides of himself operating at once, which is why I called my chapter about him, the two Tommies. He just lived in that world. My career did not really coincide with his tenure as manager. I think I covered maybe two games while he was still manager, but boy, it was an intimidating thing. I didn't have the familiarity that the beat reporters had 
where you know they would sit in his office. You hear the stories about how they sit in his office for hours and they get everything. To walk in to his presence was extremely intimidating for someone who was ostensibly an adult like me. Right. And it wasn't really until I started working for the Dodgers in 2013, at which point he was closing in on his 90th birthday, but still up and about, that I I got to sort of see him in a more just sort of less heightened state. And he was slowing down and he was often on one of those scooters, you know, not a wheelchair, but, you know, an electric right. scooter that, to get around. Not always. He was still the storyteller, and he was still kind of a crotchety guy. But, God damn, he was just someone who lived and breathed that sport. It's really something. Did you get to interact with him directly at all? Yeah. My uh, mindless sort of story is this. Not quite the caliber of some others, but when you're working for the Dodgers, the press box cafeteria is open for lunch for all the employees. They have, you know, sort of basic buffet so that you don't have to drive off somewhere to find lunch. And uh, the first time I brought my sons to see where I worked, I took them to the press box to eat. And simply by coincidence, Lasorda was in line behind me. So even though I didn't really know him, I had been introduced to him by this point, but I didn't really know him, but I introduced him to my two sons who absolutely didn't have any idea who he was. Uh. At the time, they were six and ten, I think. And he reached out his hand to shake their hands, and my sons reached out their hands, and he like, you call that a handshake? And he went off on how bad their handshake was, and he's like, let me show you how to do this. And it was at once completely emasculating for me having not taught them, apparently, to shake hands to his specifications, but also just, like, riotous. Like, it was half, like, this guy who's just in line at lunch at age 87 is now, you know, giving handshake lessons to these two kids who are just, like, completely (laughs) bewildered. And he got them to shake with a stronger hand. He's like, that's the way to do it. And that was my moment. So I would enter, I mean, I interviewed him a few times. He would, my office at Dodger Stadium was next to Steve Brenner's, office who was the publicist who really was, was Tom was a Dodger publicist back to in, dating back to the 70s and so it's a lifelong practically a lifelong friend of a sort of so I would see him a lot but you know I wouldn't position myself as someone who was like having lots of long interchanges with him right right I was always when I when I'd see him at the winter meetings I was always too starstruck I mean like the, I didn't feel that way about just about anybody else I'd see at the, at the meetings but I could never bring myself to go up go up and introduce myself he always looked too grouchy to me to approach. That was, yeah. He, he, if he's not on, he doesn't come across as someone that just wants strangers to come up to him. Right, right. And I respected, you know, I respected his privacy. I didn't want to, I didn't want to just be, you know, fanboy because I was there to do a job too. So, but I kind of regret not having taken advantage of that at least once. Well, that's the lesson with all kinds of people is like nothing sure. ventured. Sure. So getting back to, uh, I was going to ask you about, about about your time there later in the, later in the script here, but but you covered that. But you know, getting back to early impressions, I think you know for fans of fans of a young age, he really did stand out as this larger than life character, a face not just of the franchise but of baseball in general in a way that doesn't have many parallels. It's like I think back, and I know we saw like Billy Martin pitching Miller Lite, but other than that, managers didn't really turn up in popular culture in the 70s and 80s to the extent that, that Lasorda did, and they certainly don't now. Slim Fast commercials, the baseball bunch, which I actually never saw in, in its heyday, and I don't know how I missed it, but the late night talk shows, my dad would always tell me if Lasorda was on Carson or something like that, the the cameos in the, in the sitcoms and, and, and dramas. 
I'm struggling to think, not just in baseball, if there's any parallel, any personality in any sport that, that could match that. And I'm, I'm coming up blank. I mean, we don't even see players get that kind of exposure. You mean as a coach or manager? Yeah, like as a, as a, as a coach. I mean... Well, there's two things I want to... First of all, let's just talk for a moment about how peculiar it was. Not that Lasorda was friends with Sinatra and all these guys, but that he was friends with them before he had even managed a day in the big right. league. Right. Frank Sinatra sings the national anthem on opening day in 1977. A few years before that, Lasorda's a third base coach. And then he's not in L.A. <laughs> you know, but for most of his life, right. he is not in, he's certainly not in the city of L.A. He's living in Fullerton, which, if you know the geography here, is not really anywhere close to L.A. in a meaningful way. Uh-huh. He's coaching in Ogden and Spokane and these, you know, Albuquerque. And sure, he comes home during the off season, but there's never really been a story about how he came to be to be Mr. Hollywood to begin with. Right. It's completely random that it happened for him. And it, it sort of speaks to the sheer force of his personality that he had so many deep connections. He wasn't here in the 60s, or he wasn't a major figure, certainly, in the 60s when the Dodgers, you know, had taken over, had built Dodger Stadium, and you had people like Milton Berle and Danny Kay and, right. you know, Rickles and all these guys. But, some, you know, he fell into that. And then to answer your question, which is about, is there anyone comparable, Pat Riley kind of grows into the role of Hollywood's coach, but uh-huh. it's certainly not really before Showtime took off, not before he had, I think, won an NBA title. And in a kind of a world that already catered to celebrity, as opposed to, like, Lasorda brought the celebrities to the clubhouse. Uh, I, th- I mean, and again, maybe it was just, you know, they were always there, and since Walter Alston probably wouldn't have wanted anything to do with them, they gravitated towards someone who did. But yeah, it's, boy, it's, I think it's really unique what he did. And certainly, you know, there are often celebrities, that, there's celebrities at almost every Dodger game now, and they come on the field and they'll say hi. They'll throw out the first pitch. They'll do such and right. such. George Lopez, for example, is someone who's like kind of a really regular presence. But it's not like Dave Roberts is like the center of attention for Hollywood. You know? Yeah. But yeah, Tommy was. Yeah. it's. A, I mean, I think, you know, he was like, he was a household name as a coach practically. You know, I know that that NBC game of the week. I, I I feel like I saw a clip of it years and years ago, where he essentially predicts a Ron Say home run while he's mic'd up or whatever. But I ha- I couldn't find the clip when I was when I went looking for it for my tribute piece. But yeah, it must have been something. There's a there. I was thumbing through this uh, this True Blue, this oral history of the uh, of the right. Dodgers, um, which you know was kind of my thumbnail guide to the history of the team, at least in the in the Los Angeles years. And the guy who who I, I I quoted in my piece, Mike Litwin, describes a scene at Vero Beach where where Chuck Connors, the you know ex Dodger who became a movie star, is has got uh, you know a group of people around him, and Lasorda's you know with with what little he accomplishes as a player has a group ar- around him. This is 1951, and Lasorda has more people around him than Chuck Connors does. I mean, this is like. You know, this journeyman scrapper is is outdrawing movie stars even then, and so yeah, it's it it is kind of it, it does 
it feels like that that part of the story, you know, I'm I'm missing. I haven't read I haven't read enough, but I really would like to like to figure out how how all that happened. Like you said, that that he's suddenly in with Sinatra. Uh, I mean, maybe he was he, maybe he was great at getting tickets for these guys. That's, that's you know at least you know once it, once he was in once he was in L.A. But I don't I don't know I I, I don't really have a basis for that. I guess the one coach I could think of you said you said Pat Riley. I thought of John Madden. He did like the he did Miller commercials and and did the Simpsons and a couple other cameos. But there's just nobody on the scale of Lasorda in terms of turning up in so many different genres of of showbiz. No, I don't think, yeah, I mean, John Madden obviously became a huge personality, but he wasn't a national personality while he was still coaching. Right, right, right. And, and you know, yeah, he did commercials, but it wasn't, you know, a lot of guys, Bob Euchre was the face of the Miller Lite commercials. Right, and, right. Know, it wasn't like Madden had taken off in that respect. Yeah. What's your favorite place that Lasorda turned up in a cameo or just a random TV appearance? Do you have a favorite? Well, I think I would have said the Fantasy Island one. Um, just because that is such a goofy <laughs> episode. I don't know if you've seen it, but I haven't. But basically, Gary Berghoff from MASH, it's his fantasy to become like the greatest pitcher of all time. And they do, they got George Brett and Steve Garvey and I want to say Fred Lynn and guys oh, nice. to play against him. And they would whiff because he was throwing basically, it's modeled directly from the Bugs Bunny curveball. It's one uh-huh. of these. It's it's live action because it's Fantasy Island, but it's basically one of these like twisting, looping, crazy, goofy, flubber curveballs that's striking everyone out. And Lasorda is in that episode too, but he's not really the featured guy. It's just so goofy. So honestly, when I when I rewatched the uh, Police Squad clip oh, um, the other day, I was just like, not only is he great in it, but like the whole thing is like anticipating sabermetrics in such a way that. You can tell how much the Zucker brothers, I think it's them, how serious they were about baseball, that they would not only get, they have this moment to have Tommy Lasorda on the show, on the show, and then they start talking about, you know, number four starters and bullpenning and all this yeah, stuff. Your long, yeah, you're long, you need a left-handed swingman to fill your long relief spot. <laughs> <laughs> and Lasorda's like, yeah, you know, and they're like having a real baseball conversation. Right. On this yeah, company. Not- that 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 one was my favorite, and re- reacquainting myself with it was was a real pleasure. If you're listening to this and uh, you haven't seen that clip, it is in my in my tribute, which ran uh, on Wednesday of this week. Moving on here, you know, one of the things, and you 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 touched on it before with Red Adams, and I, uh, one of the things the Dodgers did so well for so long was continuity. There was a lot of it behind the scenes that is certainly as kids, we had no appreciation for that, you know, Buzzy Bavese and Al Campanis as GMs for 40 years. And then Walter Olson holding the job as manager for even longer than, than Tommy ended up, you know, between Lasorda and the longest running infield, it certainly, I felt like it made it easier to get a handle on the team as, as a young, as a young fan, because those guys were there. And you know, that extended to pitching coaches and, you know, not everybody got to stay in the organization, you know, as, lo- as long as Lasorda did, but because he was such a legend. But I, I, I don't know. I think that always, I, I guess I, I find myself lamenting that now, even though the Dodgers are successful, you know, despite some turnover. But Well, it was definitely a point of pride that yeah. um, the Dodgers had two managers over a 43-season stretch. Um, Not just like a statistical oddity, but like something that we as Dodger fans celebrated explicitly. And they won in that time six World Series. Now, that's a glass half empty, half full thing. They won six World Series 
that in, that means in 37 of the seasons they didn't win the World Series. Um, and certainly Lasorda's 1988 record, post-1988 record, I'm sorry, from 1989 to 96, is nothing to write home about. He lost a division title to the strike, but other than that, I mean, you know, they didn't win a playoff game again right. after after Hershiser in 88. Right. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but I think overall it was a happy time to be a Dodge fan. I talked to Peter O'Malley extensively for this for my book, and the idea was to have was to be con- continue to be an evolving organization, and you can see that in the way they scouted internationally, for example, and were you know out at the forefront of people like Hideo Nomo and Chanho Park, and for that matter the Martinez brothers, but. They believed in, even if they didn't have the same personnel in place like they did with Sorta and Alston, in a way of handing down the wisdom of those people to the next person in line. So Red Adams is pitching coach for an eon. Eventually he retires. They hand it off to, I think, Ron Paranoski, who is really an underrated figure in the Dodger organization. He's probably the most important, if you take the entirety of his career, he's probably the most important relief pitcher in the franchise's history. Mm-hmm. from his playing career to his coaching to his work with the minor leaguers. And so he doesn't have the same position for as long as, I think, Adams, much less Lasorda. But they had this combination of stability and evolution that I think, in a pre-sabermetric era at least, was kind of ideal. And frankly, there is some stability working in returning to the organization. You know, you blink and suddenly Andrew Friedman's been in charge for going into his eighth season. Wow the approach that they're taking is now pretty entrenched. So we'll see where this thing goes. I find it the most interesting that Tommy Lasorda, first five seasons, won two pennants without winning the World Series, and then won the World Series in his fifth season. And then Dave Roberts won two pennants without winning the World Series, and then won the World Series in his fifth season. And close to the same age. I'm, I'm really curious to see. Roberts may not want to manage till he's in his 60s. I don't right. know, but I'm curious to see where that goes. Certainly the potential for it. Interesting parallel also that both of those guys, they're, they're the teams that won one in broken seasons, you know, comparatively speaking. Yeah. The, 80, the 81 strike and the, obviously this year, but those were strong nuclei that were just, you know, so close to championships, you know, multiple times before finally getting over the top. Getting back to Paranowski for a second, he he passed away in, in October um, and if they had the playoffs and I hadn't been writing so many other tributes, I probably would have would have sunk my teeth into doing something about him because, uh, yes, pitching coach for uh, for the team from 1981 to 94. That's uh, that's the heart of Lasorda's tenure there. But, you know, OK, so you you wrote a whole book about about the best Dodger pitchers, uh, both uh, from the Brooklyn days and, and, and the Los Angeles days. And, you know, one of the one of the things I've always thought about Lasorda was and maybe this is maybe this is uh, undeserved, but uh you know, he had a tendency to just wear his top pitchers down to the nub. Fernando, Oral Hershiser, Ramon Martinez, you know, those those three especially. But uh, um, and maybe maybe it's just those three. But, you know, I know Doug Rao got hurt. Rick Roden got hurt. Do you think he was he overburdened his pitchers or do you think that it was just more the, the style, you know, the just the industry tendencies at the time? And those guys were just kind of victims of that. Do you think it was specific to him or not? He was, I don't want to say he was extreme, but he was at the more aggressive edge during what was a more aggressive time. Mm-hmm. I went back and looked at a couple things this afternoon ahead of this interview. Ramon Martinez 
under Lasorda's management through at least 120 pitches in a game, at least 120 pitches in a game, 31 times. And in 1990, when he was not yet 23, it was age 22 season, he had games of 145, 147, and 148. Oof. This is 1990, so this is fairly far along. This is after you've seen Oral Hershiser and Fernando Valenzuela kind of, you know, hit the limits, right. basically. In fact, Martinez's presence is almost a direct consequence of the fact that Hershiser missed time. And again, I don't think that was, cons- I don't think anyone was counting, per se. I don't think anyone was going, what is he doing to Ramon Martinez? Right. There was another stat where Lasorda is basically the last, I got this from Chris Jaffe's book. Mm-hmm. Chris no relation Jaffe right. <laughs> on managers. Lasorda is basically the last major league manager in history, other than like very short term guys who had no relief pitcher throw seventy games for him, and he had one thirty save closer. One one time did a closer get thirty saves for him during his tenure? Fifty two different closers had at least thirty saves. Wow! So it's contextual. He I don't think anyone really blinked when Lasorda left these guys in, but it's clear that he was a guy, I mean, he, and this is the consequence of him being the kind of pitcher that, and this is documented, threw a 25 strikeout, 15 inning complete game in the minors in which it was calculated that he threw 350 pitches minimum in that game. Yeah. For Schenectady in 1948, if you want to look it up. And, uh, yeah, I mentioned that. I mentioned that one in my piece. And I think he's, he says uh, the, he thought it was 300 and then 350 is, is, is a new one on me. But I think I saw that if, if it was your article well, or, or somewhere else. Yeah. But, uh, according to Lasorda, he sat down with Bobby Valentine and yeah. they kind of went through the game. I'm sure, again, partly by memory and it's faulty, sure. but it's not at all incomprehensible yeah. if you add up how many batters he faced. Sure. And, yes. you know, this paid off for him in many ways. I mean, legendary game. For him is game three of the 81 World Series where Fernando is really on yes. the ropes yep. in the third inning. And he's close to being taken out. In fact, Lasorda pinched it for his catcher in the third inning to let you know how willing he was to be aggressive. But he just, you know, he had believed in Fernando all season. Fernando wasn't a secret to him. He had, before the 81 season began, he had watched, he had known about Fernando. He'd seen him pitch in the minors. He'd seen him pitch through all of spring training. It was no mystery to him like it was to every other fan that Fernando was going to be something. He let Fernando ride and he he went 140 pitches in a World Series game that was I think a one run 5 to 4 game. 5 4, yep. When the Dodgers were down two games to none. Right, well, it was absolutely as other than being an elimination game, it was a must-win game. And the Dodgers had lost six straight World Series games, you know. They lost the last four in 78 yeah. and the first two in 81. So they were really I mean, beyond desperate for a victory in a World Series. And he let him ride. And just to have that memory, no matter how you come down on the Blake Snell question, the contradiction that Blake Snell throw literally one half of the pitches that Fernando threw right. and was pulled from that game. I mean, you know, some of that's Lasorda, but some of that is just like how far we've come. I think if, if you tried to tell Lasorda about the three times through the order penalty – that would get you a swift. I wonder. I, honestly, I wonder. I wonder if watching the the twenty twenty World Series and the way the Rays handled the pitchers killed him. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sent him to the hospital. But you would have loved Urias because Urias finished the World Series the way Steve Howe finished the World Series. Yeah. Well, you know, getting getting back first of all to uh, Hershiser here. I pulled up his game logs here for nineteen eighty eight. One hundred fifty three pitch outing on June fourth. An eleven hit five run complete game loss five to two. Not even close. 
and a 169-pitch game on October 1st, 1989, when they're not even in it. Yeah. 11, 11 in incomplete game. And and that one, you've got 141, 139, 134, 130. I mean, those are just, you know, ghastly numbers by, you know, in terms of the context of today. But getting back, getting back to Fernando, I think the one thing that really stands out, you know, as much as, as much as anything with Lasorda for me, you know, beyond the pop culture stuff, the larger than life stuff, uh, the ambassadorship stuff, the one thing that stands out for me is that he, believed in young players like no other manager I've ever seen. He trusted he put he put his faith and his trust in young players cuz cuz he'd see, he'd like you said he'd seen a lot of them. You know, he saw, he'd seen Fernando, you know, he Fernando got his trial by fire in the 1980 race and 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 was just lights out. He managed the longest running infield and and you know, half half that roster, you know, in the 70s, he'd managed those guys in you know, in Ogden and Spokane and and Albuquerque. And so he believed in, in, in those younger players and, and you know, really, I, I think that, I, you know, just in a way that I, I just, we don't see that that often or certainly not in that kind of consistency with that kind of volume, you know, for, for contending teams. And that that's always, that's always struck me. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, now I think he identified with them. I don't know that that makes him unique because a lot of, you know, ball players end up as managers who, you know, maybe wanted a bigger chance when they were young. But I think he did connect with them kind of in a visceral way. And he was the kind of, he was just the kind of person who, for him, fearlessness was such a big thing that it was fearlessness on his part. And he wanted to find, if a player had fearlessness, he didn't care how old that player was. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Hershiser one is sort of the twist to all that because Hershiser was someone who, but who was a minor league teammate of Fernando's, actually. And that, but of course, Fernando, soars to the big leagues and Hershiser doesn't. And as Hershiser's coming up in 83 and 84, he sort of sees him as someone who's pitching defensively, who's not pitching with confidence in his weapons. And it's not just the Bulldog name. I mean, the Bulldog nickname is kind of the legendary part of the story. And Hershiser confirms the importance of that nickname to him. But there are other aspects of it too. One of the stories I got from Hershiser was that he comes into the clubhouse one day and there's a baseball on his chair, and he doesn't know why it's there. He can't imagine anyone's asking him to autograph it because he hasn't done anything really in the big leagues yet. And it was Lasorda's way of just saying, this is your first big league start. That's how he found out he was making his first big league start. And Lasorda was like, you don't need any kind of special protection or ceremony. You can, I know you can go out and do this. Mm-hmm. So get ready, and you better go out and do this. <laughs> so right, right. I think yeah, he was very open to having not just guys like Fernando, but he would use one of my favorite games of all time. He had R.J. Reynolds batting on September 11th, 1983, in a hugely important pennant race game against the Braves, and he didn't take him out. He let him this rookie who had had a handful of at bats get up there and gave him the squeeze sign, and in a legendary call by Vince Scully, they won the game on it on a squeeze bunt by R.J. Reynolds, who nobody knew. And, you know, it was put up or shut up for Lasorda, and it didn't really matter if you were 19 or 20 like Fernando or 40-something like Jesse Orozco. Mm-hmm. In fact, <laughs> it makes me think of the time he went out in the in the Mets-NLCS game, that famous game, the 12-inning game, I think, and Orozco's in there and not throwing strikes, and you know, normally it would be a Paranoski that goes out to make the visit. 
and Lasorda comes running out of the dugout and is basically, he's not mic'd up for this game, but it's just basically, you can tell he's just like, throw a goddamn strike, and then probably just cut the language. As if it were that simple to just throw a right. goddamn strike, but there, lo and behold, that's what happened. Right. Do you have a particular favorite moment of Lasorda as manager, aside from the championships, which I think are, you know, probably pretty obvious? Is there one that stands out to you as a particular favorite? Well, this is kind of a weird way to answer your question. There's a photograph of Lasorda sliding into home during spring training. He had to be about, he had to be in his 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. He is doing like a full-on hardcore slide into home, and the photo captures him sort of in midair as he's coming in. And it's not a slim, fast photo, you know. It's Lasorda in all his glory. (laughs) And uh, there's something, talk about unique, I can't think of a photo of a coach or manager, an action photo of a manager like that while he's uh-huh. manager. Right. Huh, he's that's like an old man. I mean, he's not an old right. man because I'm almost the same age, but um, he's, <laughs> he's, so I don't want to say that, but it's really evocative. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I would say that, I mean, my feelings sort of sort of grew complicated for a couple reasons. First, because, you know, he certainly wasn't infallible as a manager and he, I, would want to give him grief like anybody else uh, for strangely not as much for the Jack Clark decision that everyone kind of holds out there. It's just sort of like more mundane stuff than that. The kind of garden variety decisions that you would criticize any manager for. And then as the Dodgers sort of, you know, went for years without reaching the world series, it got harder, you know, and his general manager tenure was borderline disaster. Uh-huh. And certainly, was there was never a moment where I felt comfortable with him in that role. And, you know, I became aware of his role. Not He was not the re- the only reason Pedro Martinez got traded, but he was certainly a reason. Yeah. And then everything with his son, as I learned about that. And it, I don't want to really go into that here because I think it's too nuanced on one level. Some of it's black and white, but some of it's very nuanced. And there's some honestly conflicting reports about what he said publicly and what he said privately and what right. he felt. Like he certainly could have done more. He certainly could have done a lot more. But also there was some stuff on an intimate level that I think we're not entirely worthy of judging or that I should say is probably reads better than the public stuff. But certainly it was, I mean, by the time the 90s and the 2000s come, I had grown very mixed feelings of Lasorda. And honestly, and he's irascible and all that. But the sheer tonnage of the stories and his kind of unique effervescence, that seems almost too timid a word, but it just all comes together into such a such an unforgettable package. And I'm willing to sort of warts and all, as they say, you know, there's some pretty right. big warts, but um, yeah. uh, in every sense of the word, he was extraordinary, including the negative senses, but also including the positive ones for sure, you know? Right. Yeah, just to, you, you touched on a few different things, a few different loose ends there. I, you know, our our discussion of the of the uh, the pitchers, uh, whether he overworked them. I, my my pet theory is that he would have destroyed Pedro, and that you know by by the mis, the talent misjudgment was was the world's gain because Martinez got to be you know who he was with maybe a little bit more care taken to handle him in Montreal and and Boston or whatever. And I just I worry that he might have burned out you know, as quickly as his brother did, uh, had he stayed a Dodger. I didn't, I don't really have much of a memory of his time as GM, but I do remember feeling kind of resentful and 
frustrated by, you know, at the time when you and I were both blogging about the Dodgers, you know, when I, when I was very focused on the Dodgers and writing about them for prospectus as well, you know, that he was kind of this very, you know, in an advisory capacity, he was, he seemed to wield a very heavy hand. Like I know he played a big part in, in the decline and fall of the De Podesta regime, you know, at a point when it seemed like analytics was starting to get a foothold in, in, in the Dodgers front office and they blew that up pretty quickly. And I was always a little frustrated by that. Right, right. But I think, like you said, you know, there's, he was extremely, you know, there's, you're around that long, there's so many, you know, complexities and so many twists and turns of the tale. And yeah, the, the, the personal stuff, I mean, yes, I think it's very tough to, to encapsulate in that in the podcast. And I learned stuff when I was, when I was digging into it that I didn't know. And I think it's, it's probably a disservice to try to dissect that here, especially because we'll never know the, the whole story, but I did write about my own impressions of it, but yeah, it's it's just such a such a larger than life thing. But I'll I'll close with my favorite moment of him as a manager was in 1993 when the Dodgers were out of it and uh, the last day of the season. I think I had, I had just sort of come back to baseball after college. I hadn't really watched much in college, but I guess I was watching Sports Center. It was the night before the final game of the season. Lasorda was asked. I guess he had the, the the Dodgers had a chance to play spoiler because the Braves and the Giants both had 103 wins going into the final day of the season. And remembering back to 1982, it was the Giants who knocked out the Dodgers. Well, Lasorda was like asked about it. like, no, just another game. You know, you know, we're just pants on one leg at a time or whatever. And then Piazza hit two home runs and the Dodgers blew out the Giants 12 to one. And, and Lasorda just was like, add another f-ing thing, you know, just like just <laughs> taunting, taunting the Giants. Like I think, I think he and Hersheiser actually did get accused of taunting because they were just so out of control comparatively speaking for you know for for the the standards of decorum and it prevented the Giants from getting to the playoffs because there was no wild card then and I always thought that was like Tommy's competitive spirit and 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 a bit of revenge served cold for that 1982 which broke my heart as a kid so I always look back to that and I think that kind of captured Tommy for me a bit yeah it does I mean it's sort of hard because you don't want to be the guy you want to be rooting for a team where like that's your greatest moment of the season is winning you know right but for Tommy but certainly as a Tommy moment it, you know like it, that fits perfectly yeah well John we've uh, we, we've we've talked here longer than I expected us to but uh, it's been great conversation here Thank you so much for coming on to talk here on Fangraphs Audio about Lasorda. I wish it were under happier circumstances that we could that we could uh, uh, kick around the Dodgers and all that. But uh, this was this was a real treat for me. So thank you. Uh, me as well. Thanks for. Uh, I really enjoyed being able just to talk about talk about all that stuff. It's a uh, it's funny, you know. You, Lasorda becomes the subject where you get to talk about everything. Pretty much. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah you've, you've got half a century of baseball history easily right there. <laughs> so I appreciate it. All right. Well, for John Weissman, I'm Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio, and we will talk to you next week. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you like the show. If you think you know someone who may also like it, tell them to check us out. We will return next week with more baseball analysis and discussion. Have a good weekend.